Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The pain in our world may not be some sinful experience or sinful circumstance in our life. It may be just the way it is in this sinful world. He says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Do you see that? But if you search your heart and if you pray and God does not reveal some sin in your life that he's trying to point out to you, you can recognize that you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. life be so much better if we could just hit the easy button every time we encountered something uncomfortable? In a way, that's what temptation is. We find ourselves in a difficult situation and we have the choice to follow God's path or to compromise God's word. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares challenges our understanding of suffering and urges us to continue living godly lives no matter what. Our message is titled, What to Do When the Bad Stuff Keeps Happening. Let's get started. Thomas Carlyle, the uh, famous 19th century British historian, had just finished the first volume of his greatest life work. It was entitled The French Revolution. Some of you had to read that, I'm sure, in college. And Carlyle had worked for many months on this. After completing it, he handed it off to a good friend, John Stuart Mill, the famous British philosopher and asked him to proofread it for him and give him his feedback. So Mill started working through this and just a few pages into it he recognized that this was a great literary masterpiece. He knew he had in his lap something that would be read for centuries to come. And so he would day after day read more and more of this manuscript and as he did he would lay the pages that he had read down on the floor next to his reading chair. Well, finally, after several days, he had completed reading this huge work, and he'd laid all those pages down on the floor, and very tired, late at night, he stumbled into his bedroom and went to sleep. Early the next morning, the maid came in. She saw the disheveled pile of papers, and trying to be good at cleaning up his study, she piled them all up and promptly threw them in the burning fireplace. <laughs> After Mill profusely apologized to Carlyle, Carlyle was forced to rewrite the entire first volume of this work. By his own confession, he said that was the most grueling and monumentous task he'd ever had in his life. And you can well imagine how difficult it would be to try and recapture the passion and the inspiration that he had to write that entire first part of that life work read that story and I thought to myself how much like life that is and how much like our lives that is when we in our Christian life get through some trial or some struggle and we finally get to the top, we get to the crest of the mountain, we get through the dark valley, we have a sense of graduation that we've been through this taunting trial and just about the time we're trying to hang up our spiritual diploma on the wall. It feels like God takes us back to square one. Page one, lesson one, and it's start all over again. Same trial, same situation, same pain. 
It happens in our lives, and going through the same kind of trial twice is tough. Three times is even more difficult, and some of us have had those prolonged kinds of trials and those recurring troubles in our lives that seem to never go away, and we raise our hands before God and say, God, what's going on here? Why? Why? What's wrong? Why is it that I've tried to be obedient and serve you and be the kind of Christian that you wanted me to be, and here I am, back to square one, same physical ailment, won't go away. Same trouble in my marriage that I thought we conquered. Same problem with my kids at work. It's just not getting any better. I've committed this to you a hundred times. I'm struggling with the same old thing over and over again. I know that David had this feeling in 1 Samuel chapter 26 because you read it and the first thing you think is deja vu. I've read this before, but you haven't because just two chapters earlier, though it shares many Similar characteristics. This is an entirely new day in David's life. And if you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it and turn there this morning. And if you can, just empathize for a few moments with David's trauma of having to go through the same kind of trial that he had successfully, as you can recall, passed and graduated from just two times before in two prior chapters. He had been chased by King Saul into the desert, as you remember, a fugitive with a price on his head. The king wants to kill him. He is the anointed prince of Israel, yet few people recognize that. He has a band of 600 outcasts, and Saul is out to get him. In chapter 24, Saul has him cornered, you might think, in this cave, and he has a chance to do away with him. And David, instead of killing Saul, which he could have done, he decides to let him go. He passes the test, though with some minor infringements on God's standard, taking a little partial revenge. He still comes out of this as a guy who didn't do what he could have done to save himself a lot of trouble. He seemed to have passed the test. And then in chapter 25, we looked at his test with Nabal. Similar situation. He had a chance to take revenge. And by the grace of God and through the help of Abigail, who gave him some wise counsel, David withdrew his hand from revenge and seems to come through this chapter shining, succeeding. He's done it. Now, I wouldn't expect chapter 26 to be the same song, third verse, but it is. It's the same kind of situation. Look at it with me, if you would. In verse number one, the text says that the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakila, which faces Jeshumon? Now, I assume that this is something that you look at, and if you've been with us, you say, I recognize some of these names. You will, because in chapter 24, it's the same group of people that turn on David and say, we know where David's hiding. And so word goes out to Saul, and Saul, verse 2, goes down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 men to search for David. He makes his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah, facing Jeshimon. But David, he stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent scouts out and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. One of the neat things about teaching expositionally and studying exegetically is that you go to the text and you just let the text speak. You draw things out of the text just by definition. That's what it means. We go to the scripture, we see what it says, we make observations about what's there, and we learn to live our lives that way. In the first four verses, it's not what I see there that impresses me. It's what I don't see there that impresses me. And the thing that needs to be exposited is not the presence of David's reaction. It's the absence of David's reaction. Because in this kind of situation, I would think you, like me, would decide at that point, God, I've had enough. 
I'm just absolutely shot and tired of this kind of thing. God, if I'm going to be the next king, put me into office. If I'm not going to be the next king, then I guess I should just go to another country and forget all about it. But at least in chapter 6, that is not David's response. And if you think, well, all godly people would respond the way David does, you've got it completely wrong. You might remember in 1 Kings chapter 19, you learned this on the flannel graph, if you'll remember in Sunday school, old Elijah had been chased by Jezebel into the desert. Same kind of desert experience. The powers that be in the capital of Israel were after Elijah. And Elijah went out into the desert. The Bible says he was totally discouraged. And in verse number four, he said, God, I've had enough. Take my life. And he laid down under a broom tree in the desert. And he said, God, I've had it. And he laid down to die. Now that's despondency. That's depression. That's a guy who's reached the point of utter despair. If you look at the first few verses of this passage again, you'll see none of that response from David. David doesn't have any kind of despair. At least it seems at this particular point, he may be frustrated, but he hasn't lost hope. And if you want to get through the kind of recurring and prolonged trials that God seems to allow his saints to walk through, would you, number one, do what David did? Would you make it a point in your life not to despair? Don't despair. Don't lose heart. And that's the high calling of the Christian, isn't it? We are called to no matter what the circumstance, do something that in the minds of those around us seems absolutely absurd. What we're called to do is no matter how long, how prolonged, and how difficult our struggle, we are called to not lose heart. If you know your Old Testament, you might recall that there's an ancient Mesopotamian cultural practice of tearing your clothes. Have you ever read that in the scripture? Someone has news like Job that his children have just been killed. He tears his clothes. Story comes in about someone whose son has been killed in battle. The text says those Jewish parents would tear their clothes. Tearing your clothes was the ultimate sign of despondency in the Old Testament. It was a cultural practice and it was well known. But there was one group of people in the Old Testament who were required by God specifically on more than one occasion that they could not tear their clothes. And you know who those people were? Those were the priests of God. The priests in the Old Testament were told by God specifically, no matter how bad things get, no matter what happens in your life, if everything falls apart, if you're completely sick, chronically ill, if your spouse dies, no matter what's your problem, be sure that before the children of Israel and before God and his angels, you never tear your clothes. Because that would show that you being the priests of God, given a special relationship with God, have said in some way to the people around you, God is not enough, and I can't handle this, and I want the priests of my nation Israel never to show that kind of despondency, because as people who have as their inheritance, as it's often put in the Old Testament, the priests of Israel, you should never show that kind of despondency, because you should never be that despondent, because if you have God, and you have assurance of eternity, you should never lose heart, no matter how bad it gets. It's a neat thing about the New Testament. When we start reading the New Testament, we see that this model of the Old Testament where all these people would go to the priests to get access to God, they would bring their sacrifice to the priests and they would seek God's face by going through the priesthood in the New Testament. Guess what we're all called? All of us who have repented of our sins and put our trust in Christ in the New Testament are called priests. First Peter says we are all priests. What does that mean? That means you don't have to go to anybody to get access to God. That means you don't have to go through a special group of people who've got some hotline to God 
You, if you're a Christian, have direct access to God, and the intimacy that should be cultivated in that kind of access should lead us, much like the Old Testament priests, to never despair. And if there's a common theme in the New Testament, it is that the Apostle Paul shows us by his life and by the principles that he teaches that we should never lose heart. And I know that sometimes the recurring trials of our lives that seem to be same song, second verse, same song, third verse, same song, fourth verse, we start thinking, God, I can't go on. It's at that point we need to say to ourselves, now, God, what is it that you have given me that supersedes and goes beyond the boundaries of the trial that I face? And God has said that we have a lot. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it's really clear that in the Christian life, when we face struggles, we should recognize that the pain in our lives does not necessarily mean that something is wrong with us. Now, parenthetically, let me say, as you turn to this passage, there are times in our lives where God pulls out the divine paddle and he applies it to our spiritual popo. And when he does... It's called spiritual discipline according to Hebrews chapter 12 and all of us should respond as James chapter 4 says in the early part of the passage that we should be people that turn our laughter to sorrow, our joy into mourning. We should be people that recognize there's something to cry about and it's always based on sin in our lives when it's divine discipline and if we would just repent of the sin, God will take the trial away. That's how it works. That's how discipline works. But many times in our Christian life, the pain that we're feeling is not an indicator that something's wrong with me. It is the reality of this particular passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 that the pain in our lives is often caused by the sin that exists in the world, and that's just the way it is for people who make a claim to live godly in a wicked and sinful place. Look at it, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, and these are words that should be underlined in your Bible. If they're not, mark it up now because they're so important for us. It says, 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised. Don't freak out. Don't think it's odd. Don't go, this is weird. This shouldn't be happening at the painful trials that you are suffering. I love the way he puts it here. As though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't you feel that way sometimes? I mean, God, why? Why won't this sickness go away? Why won't my marriage get better? Why won't this situation with my kids improve? Why can't my work be like everybody else's that seems to be fine and mine's just such a big pain? Why, God? Why won't it stop? And the text says the pain in our world may not be some sinful experience or sinful circumstance in our life. It may be, according to this passage, just the way it is in this sinful world. He says in verse 13 and drives it home, look at it, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Do you see that? Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, if I'm tempted to think the pain in my life is caused by God's discipline or chastisement, and I say, God, there must be some sin in my life that I don't see. Maybe there is, but when you pray for God to reveal it, I guarantee you, God doesn't want to play mind games with you when you ask that question. He'll make it clear. It'll be the first thing that pops into your mind, that thing he brings to your memory. That's the way God works when he's disciplining you. But if you search your heart and if you pray and God does not reveal some sin in your life that he's trying to point out to you, you can recognize that you are participating in the sufferings of Christ, who had no sin to confess, right? You and I would agree this morning, I hope you would, that Jesus Christ had no sin in his life. He did nothing wrong. There was nothing that the Father had to chastise him for. 
But the point is, he lived a godly life in a sinful place, and because of that, it caused a lot of suffering in his life because the world was sinful. You know, it wasn't David's fault that he was a fugitive. It was Saul's fault. It was not David's fault in chapter 25 that he was being harassed and going hungry because of a guy named Nabal who was not generous. It was Nabal's fault. And again in chapter 26, it's not his fault that he's having to deal with the same problem all over again. It's Saul's fault. And oftentimes that's what it is in our lives. It's not our fault. It's not our punishment. It's not our discipline that God is trying to exact in our lives. It's just the fact that we live in a sinful world. And I looked at the things in my life as I studied this passage this week, and I said, well, some things obviously are caused because of my stupidity, sowing and reaping, spiritual discipline. But there are several things in my life that seem to be recurring that have nothing to do with that, it has everything to do with the sinful world that I live in. The illnesses that I have, the people that I deal with that sometimes aren't so kind toward the church or toward my life personally, these people oftentimes are giving me trouble in my life, not as a result of something I have done wrong, but as a result of what is wrong in their lives. And God says, you know, that's a time for us to rejoice that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse 14 in that passage if you're still there. It says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. And the spirit of, of glory and of God rests on you. Look at that carefully. Do you know that God is rarely closer to you than when you are suffering and it's not your fault? Here's David suffering again, saying, oh my goodness, Saul is after me again? I thought he repented of this. But when he was suffering because of that and having to deal with the approaching 3,000 people that were out to kill him that day, the Bible says, look at it carefully, the spirit of glory and of God rested on David. That's the time that God takes special attention of your life. Now, if you suffer as a murderer, verse 15, he says, or a thief or any kind of criminal or a meddler, then that's different. He says, but if you suffer just as being a Christian, you didn't do anything wrong, but bad stuff is happening to you and it doesn't seem to go away, don't be ashamed of that, but praise God that you bear his name. And that's one thing that supersedes the trial that you're in, no matter what's going on in your life. If you're a follower of Christ, you bear his name. You're a child of the king. And the kinds of things that will happen in your life 10 trillion years from now cannot be changed by the reality of the people causing trouble in your life or your body that's failing or some sickness you have or some trial at work or some boss that doesn't understand. Bottom line is, if I can do anything this morning to help you, never reach the line of despair. That's what I want to do because it is a dignified biblical response that we cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us. We entreat him with our prayer requests and then we sit back and allow the peace of God, which if you'll remember in Philippians 4, surpasses all understanding. People scratch their head and they don't get it. And God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you remember that passage? How important that is for us who are in the midst of the trial that won't go away the chronic life pain that's always seeming to be there, and it's like, God, why don't you take this away? Sometimes he doesn't, but it's not as a result of your problem. It's a result of other people's problem, and it's time for us to say, God, then I won't lay down like Elijah in the desert and despair for my life. Don't despair. Back to our passage. Second thing we see David do is not something that we look at and find the absence of a response that impressed me. I think there are several things that he does in this passage that very much impress me. In verses 5 through 20, if you'll notice a few things, it says in verse number 5 that he set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. Now, I read this and 
pondered it at length, and I thought to myself, what is it that David is setting out to do? Okay, he hears that Saul is coming, he sends out scouts, he realizes that they've definitely arrived. That'd be the time I would think I would hightail it out of town and get as far away from Saul as possible, but, but instead, the text says that David sent, set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. Now, what was his intention here? I don't know what his intention was here, but I assume that his intention was here, what he actually did. And what he actually does is he tries to make a case for his innocence. He sets out to make Saul realize that he's not the bad guy that Saul has made him out to be. He makes a personal defense of his life. That's what he does. And I think that's what he set out and intended to do. Now, within the course of him trying to justify before Saul that he wasn't the bad guy that Saul thought he was, he wasn't the usurper of the throne, he was not out to kill Saul or knock him off. If he could get that point across, that's what he wanted to do. But in the midst of all of that, there was a special temptation that arose. Look at it, if you would, as he goes into this camp while all of them are sleeping, long before dawn, and look at it in verse number seven, a guy named Abishai says, I'll go with you to the army by night where Saul is lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were all lying around Saul. Look at verse eight. Abishai says to David, wow, everyone's sound asleep. We've made it to the center of the camp. We've snuck in here by stealth. No one has seen us. And he says, wow, today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. I can kill him. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike twice. And I'm thinking at that point, Round three, same temptation. Maybe it's time to take this into my own hands. And yet David resists the temptation and says to Abishai and passes this test again, do not destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless as surely as the Lord lives? He said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he'll die or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. I guess that's what David came for. And when tempted to do more, he says, no, I know I want relief from this, but I'm going to steal these things, go across the valley, and show Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you, justifying himself in the process, saying, look, I'm not the bad guy you think I am. But when tempted to do more, which would end his suffering, at least in the present, he decides not to do it. When you find yourself in a tricky or dangerous situation, it can be difficult to resist the temptation to take the easy way out. But as David's story reminds us, God expects us to live godly lives no matter what. Thanks, Pastor Mike, for this important reminder. You're listening to Focal Point and a message titled, What to Do When the Bad Stuff Keeps Happening. Now you can download the free study notes and listen to this message again on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. Well, no matter how joyful and godly our lives are, we all encounter bumps on the path. And that's why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team have selected a book called The Bumps Are What You Climb On as this month's featured resource. The late author and Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe offers 30 brief accessible chapters offering comfort to anyone who is facing frustration, depression, disappointment, or loneliness. These meditations will help you rediscover an optimistic outlook so you can face each day with hope. When you give a donation of any amount to the ministry of Focal Point, we'll say thanks by sending you this special book. Request it today when you call 888 888 
320-5885. Or online, go to focalpointradio.org. If you'd rather mail in your donation, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. These are people just like you who listen to the program and value reaching the world with the truth of God's Word. Our partners help us minister to others around the world by providing free access to all of Pastor Mike's sermons, devotionals, and videos, and helping pay for radio airtime. So sign up today when you go online to focalpointradio.org or call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. So glad you joined us. Be sure to come back tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. This time he's answering the question, is there a God? Hear the important discussion when you join us on Friday for Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder how is God's word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.